0: You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. A roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio.
1: This week on the Ticker Podcast, shareholder activism up in Asia and Europe, equity crowdfunding goes live in the US, and our latest webinar looks at next generation surveillance. Welcome back to the London studio, where we're gathered for episode 55 of the Ticker podcast, our weekly roundup of stories and headlines from around the world of investor relations. I'm Garnet Roach, and I'm joined today by Condice de Montpetit and Tim Human. Good morning.
2: Good morning.
1: So I'm back in London for a week and guest hosting the podcast, as you can tell. We've had a bit of controversial news here in the UK this week that the BBC will be mothballing 10,000 recipes from its website. There's been a lot of jokes about meatballs and mothballs. And uh, this is part of a cost-cutting exercise, it says. Um, Public outcry followed, and on Tuesday the BBC announced that it would in fact move the recipes to the BBC Good Food website, which is run by its commercial arm. And I was wondering, is there a lesson in here for IROs?
2: I guess companies that are faced with a bit of cost-cutting might want to, I don't know, merge some areas of their website or take some of their, you know, long-standing financial reports off or something like that. And then all of the investors would get very upset about that and maybe launch a petition.
1: And then there could be a very dramatic U-turn. It's all very exciting. Lots of lessons to be learned from the BBC.
2: Indeed,
3: but why scrap the food? I mean, anything but the food!
2: I think after, after the campaign, they're not going to actually remove the recipes from the web. You will still be able to find them. And actually, I read that as soon as the BBC announced this, someone had already set up a searchable index of BBC recipes, because they won't be able to be found on Google anymore. But someone's already stepped in. So I think their website's called Auntie's Recipes. Now, Auntie is another name for the BBC, for those of us who don't know that reference.
1: So as my, my first turn hosting the uh, the podcast, I've started something off that I don't quite know how to move on from. Um, so, as we
3: say in French, sans transition.
1: From BBC Recipes to Shareholder Activism. Tim, over to you.
2: Thank you, Garnet. Seamlessly done. Um, I've been looking at some new data on activism from data firm and publisher Activist Insight. Uh, the headline news is that levels of activism globally have increased again. Uh, in the first five months of this year, 349 companies were targeted by activists. That's a 13% increase on the 308 companies that were subject of attention in 2015 over the same period.
1: And so what was the regional breakdown of this activity?
2: Asia has seen the biggest rise in activity, although that activity is starting from a very low base, to be fair. Uh, This year, there have been 19 campaigns so far in the region in the first five months, a rise from 11 last year over the same period. So small numbers, but equivalent to a 73% rise overall. Asia is not an area we typically associate with a lot of activist activity, but maybe this is a sign that the situation is starting to change. Five of the 2016 campaigns have been in Japan, while three have been in South Korea and Singapore each. Europe has also seen a notable uptick, uh, with 30% more campaigns this year than last. Within Europe, it was the UK and Channel Island companies which saw the biggest impact, with uh, a 46% rise in the number of companies targeted.
1: And what about in North America? Obviously, the US is the area that we associate most with um, shareholder activism.
2: Yes, the, the biggest market for shareholder activism also saw a rise. The number of companies targeted this year stands at 241, according to Activist Insight, uh, up from 216 last year. Staying with North America, notably activity in Canada, considered by some a very favourable market for activists to operate in due to the regulatory environment there, actually fell 23%. Perhaps given the tough market conditions in Canada at the moment, there's little upside for activists to hope for.
1: And what was Activist Insight's take on the figures?
2: Well, Josh Black, a spokesperson for the firm, says that the global economic slowdown and uh, high stock market valuations might give the impression to some that activist activity could be slowing or should slow. He states, however, that the data shows, in fact, the number of companies dealing with activist campaigns is continuing to grow at the moment.
1: I actually spoke to Josh Black for a feature in the summer issue that should be landing on desks in the final week of May, so look out for that. For some more from the U.S. market, um, Condice, you've been looking at equity crowdfunding.
3: Yes, equity crowdfunding has finally been uh, legalized in the U.S. Thanks to the Jobs Act, small companies and startups will now be able to sell shares to uh, individual investors and raise up to 1 million online over 12 months.
1: This isn't really something new, is it? I mean, crowdfunding has been going on for a while.
3: Yes, in in Europe, equity crowdfunding has been uh, legal for a few years now, with the the UK acting as a pioneer in 2012. But uh, in the US, investments were restricted to accredited investors only, and uh, companies raising money through crowdfunding websites could only offer merchandise or rebates on their products and services, not equity. It's unlikely there will be a rush to crowdfunding, though, as companies need to register with a a broker-dealer or a, a funding portal approved by regulators. Also, there are high costs and disclosure requirements to comply with. And what about IR at these newly multi-owned companies? Well, one company called uh, KCSA Strategic Communications has launched a platform dedicated to crowdfunding IR. Managing partner Jeffrey Goldberger explains that crowdfunding companies will have the same responsibility as any other to regularly update their shareholders. He tells IR magazine, quote, "'Size doesn't matter when communicating with investors,' A dollar invested in a small or large cap is no different from a dollar invested in a a crowdfunding company. It's still a dollar of hard-earned money an investor is putting to work in the hope of of an eventual return on that investment. Therefore, the same rules should apply to how companies communicate with investors, both accredited and non-accredited, frequently, thoroughly, and thoughtfully. He forgot, and with transparency.
1: (laughs) And what are the other issues around crowdfunding?
3: Well, the main concern is that shares are not liquid because there is no secondary market to buy or sell them. So for the moment, investors wanting to get their money back need to personally find someone willing to buy their shares or wait until the company is sold. So that aspect is likely going to keep a large number um, of investors at bay, even if good IR practices develop for crowdfunding.
2: Either of you interested in uh, launching any crowdfunding businesses?
1: I can only ever think of comedy um, businesses which is which is why I work in journalism and and I'm not an entrepreneur I guess. Some initiatives
3: fell short. remember about a year ago this winemaker in Burgundy wanted to list on AIM via crowdfunding platform Cedars. I think they they backed down at the last moment so not all ventures are successful.
1: One of the firms that is selling shares in the US is a Is a distillery as well, actually, so perhaps that's a a popular route for winemakers and distilleries.
2: Brewdog has been very successful in the UK, raising money from its uh, customers. I think if you buy some shares in Brewdog, then you get to go to their kind of, quote, AGM, which is really just a sort of a beer festival, and you get lots of money off uh, beer and things like that.
3: So you might see um, uh, English people fighting over pints of beer like the the Germans... (laughs) Fight over sausages, where was it? Daimler, Continental, AGM?
2: I can't remember, but there was definitely a German AGM where there was a, a fight over sausages this year. Incredible as it sounds.
3: We don't know if those shareholders were, uh, were activists, though. They, they loved sausages, but that's all we know.
1: Well, from uh, beer and sausages over to next-generation surveillance and shareholder activism, which is the subject of our latest webinar. For those of you that tuned in yesterday got to hear from Matt Danziger, Director of IR at LinkedIn, and Adam Frederick, Senior Vice President of Intelligence at Q4 firsthand. The webinar is still available online. You can go to irmagazine.com forward events. Here are a few highlights.
0: Uh, Matt from LinkedIn. So is this, has this become standard practice, like uh, a day-to-day duty of any IR team now, even if there's no activist on the horizon? Are you keeping an eye on uh, the possible emergence of an activist? I mean, I would say it's it's not – I wouldn't say it's like a number one priority to say we need to make sure that if an activist is coming around and we need to monitor it on a daily basis, but I think it kind of fits into the larger umbrella of saying the importance of understanding – who is getting interested in your company and ultimately what their role will be in the future. Do they want to partner with you for the longer term or do they have a very strong opinion about how you know, your company should be run and they're going to come in and shake up the board? It's funny. I was just thinking about scenarios in my head about how this could potentially unfold. And you know, scenario one is you know, not using tools like Adam has presented here. And you're kind of seeing somebody come in very aggressively and buying your stock. You don't know who it is, and you don't know, you know really what's going on, but you're, you're in a very kind of happy place. You're like, all right, someone's buying my stock, and they're doing it at scale, and everything's going up, and, and that must be a good thing. Um, and then given the 13F data, you could be very unpleasantly surprised with who that person is and what their, what their goals might ultimately be. Um, you know, The second scenario is as you see things beginning to heat up and you see your stock begin to move in a material way, the ability to allow your management team and your board to prepare for a particular scenario that might unfold I think is is invaluable. So I wouldn't say it's it's at the top of our list of things that we're looking for that is specifically looking for activists, but we do monitor things I think on, on a much more closer level then, just like the 13F, you know, monitoring. I mean, we, we do basically, we do quarterly updates to the executive team here, but for our team internally, I think we're watching this more on a weekly basis. We have certain reports that run and come to us to make sure that we know kind of who's becoming more in the mix. And, and conversely, those who are kind of selling out of their positions and then trying to understand why those dynamics are taking place. Matt, do you look to match up the, your surveillance with IR activities, for example, measuring the results of a road show or an analyst day or an investor conference? Do you, wanna, do you look at the activity that happens after an, an event like that? Yeah, so it's interesting. We use it very much in kind of a forward-looking way in that when we go to any conferences or we do any NDRs, we're trying to, to maximize our time with kind of the highest value opportunities. So we're looking for investors that are going to partner with us for a long period of time. And you know, we have learned over time that there are some of these investors that need multiple meetings. They need you know, a lot of lead time. They need a lot of hand holding to kind of get up the curve. And this is a primary example of something that we would use. We would look to see if somebody's kind of added a position as of late. Um, if we were going into a conference, we would leverage a lot of this intelligence to kind of bucket people in particular meetings. So I would make sure that I have kind of similar groups of people all bundled together so that the conversation can be relatively consistent. If I've got a bunch of people who are new to LinkedIn, I want to get them all together. I want to I want to be able to have the same level conversation with them. And then conversely, if I've got a number of top shareholders, I want to put them together because at the end of the day, they know the story relatively well and the conversation is going to be a little bit different.
1: That's all we've got time for right now. So thank you guys for joining me in the podcast. Thanks, Thanks Garnet, And see you again next week. Bye. Bye. Bye
0: been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.